We are, we are in a sermon series about prayer. It's all about great prayers of the Bible. And today is the last sermon in that series. And then we have a three-part series coming up, which is really casting a vision for the year ahead of ministry. And next week, we're going to be talking about prayer, but it will be in, in the context of where we're going as a church, what we hope that the Lord will do in us and through us as a church. So it'll bridge the two series. But this is the last one of our summer series, which is called Great Prayers of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at a, a famous prayer, a, a prayer that you probably all know. Why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And as you're looking for your place, please stand. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. This is a famous prayer by King Solomon. This is the word of God. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And Solomon prayed, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? The Word of God. Oh God, I pray as we take a look at this, uh, this prayer of Solomon that it would become our prayer that we would seek wisdom from you. Help us to understand the context of this prayer that we may appreciate it at a much deeper level. I ask that you would speak through me this morning. Bless your church and glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you have ever heard this prayer before? You've read this prayer. You know that Solomon asked for wisdom. Couple. Anyone not heard this prayer before? Okay, a few. This is a famous prayer. This is, this is, this is what Solomon is known for. He's known for wisdom, and at the beginning of that tradition, he is known for going to God in prayer and saying, God, I, who am I? You have put me on the throne of David, my father, and this, this task is too great for me. I am too small for this. I am not equipped for this. I'm not ready for this. I need some help, God. Please give me some wisdom. 
And Solomon gets that wisdom, we'll see. And, and Solomon becomes known for wisdom. And Jesus himself refers back to Solomon and his great wisdom. Refers to how the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came to sit at Solomon's feet. And Jesus says, now there's one greater than Solomon. And why do you not sit at my feet? I declare to you that the queen of the south will rise up and condemn this generation. Because one greater than Solomon is here. So Solomon was wise. He, he wrote many proverbs. He, he is the backbone of Israel's wisdom tradition. And in Israel's wisdom tradition, the book most closely associated with him is the book of Proverbs. The book of Ecclesiastes is also attributed to him. The book of Job is not, but it's, it's a part of this wisdom tradition. And then the Song of Solomon, all about love and marriage and family. God's relationship with his people. So Solomon asked for wisdom. God gave him wisdom. Therefore, this morning's sermon could go much like this. <coughs> Solomon made a good request of God, and we should make the same request. How many of us have asked for wisdom? How many of us ask for wisdom on a daily basis? We come up against life's challenges. Do we seek to solve them in our own strength, our own resources, or do we go to God? It's a good sermon. But there's more to this prayer than that. So I'm not negating what I just said. Everything that I said, we will probably revisit that. But, but I want to take us just a little bit deeper into this prayer. In order to do that, we have to understand, well, what was the occasion of this prayer? If you just read the prayer and you just read Solomon's words, it sounds as though Solomon is overwhelmed by the prospect of his own kingship. The problem with that, however, are the two chapters that precede. You see, in the, in the two chapters that precede this prayer, Solomon seems to be doing just fine. Thank you very much. That's what we want to look at. So what is the context of this prayer. And, and rather than this actually changing Solomon's request, it doesn't. But it deepens it. It, it helps us to understand, wow, that th this prayer is coming from a very deep place. A, a place of contrition. Almost a place of repentance. As he recognizes exactly who God is for the first time and who he is. <coughs> Could I ask somebody to bring me a bottle of water or a glass? <coughs> What's the context of this prayer? Well, it begins with the death of David. If you just go back to 1 Kings chapter 2, in verses 10 to 12, we find out that David died and Solomon was made king. So, Take a look there, 1 Kings 2, 10 to 12. David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. Verse 12, so Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. This is really important because of what comes after this and actually what comes before. It wasn't clear who was going to take over for David. And Solomon, thank you, Solomon was not the first choice. Solomon was an, uh, a child born to Bathsheba. 
We know a little bit about Bathsheba. She uh, had been violated by David. Uh, her husband had been killed by David. So Solomon is kind of an outcast among the royal sons. He, he's not really what you would consider royal pedigree. Nevertheless, he's God's choice. And we know that because God himself renames him Jedidiah, the David of the Lord, earlier in the narrative. And, and whenever God renames someone in the Bible, it means that God has put his hand on that one. He set his heart on that one. He says, I'm going to do something through this person. So we know that God chose Solomon. But that wasn't self-evident to an Israelite who was living at the time. And the front runner at the time of David's death was his son Adonijah. And Adonijah was mobilizing to become king. He had Abiathar, who was a high priest. He had Joab, who was the commander of, of David's army. Those are two really important players, good endorsements to have if you want to become king. So Adonijah was hosting this big feast. He expected to be coronated without really uh, much, much uh, struggle, without much division. He was just the known guy. But then Bathsheba begins to plot for her son. And David, we don't know if he's senile at the time, but he's not his, his old self. He's not his vigorous self. He's, he's lame. He's in bed. He's near death. He's cold, meaning like all of his strength had gone out of him. And whether or not he was tricked into it or not, David says, well, I'm going to make Solomon the king after me. And so he puts Solomon on his donkey. Solomon goes through town and he has people declaring, long live the king. And Adonijah knows that he's in trouble. So verse 12 is really important because Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father. That wasn't self-evident, but that's what happened. And then this part, whenever the narrator says something, that's what you want to believe that's what you want to take hold of because what you might wonder about solomon's infant kingship is how secure is it because really the the, the one the, the guy the prince of wales who everyone thought would become king he might not like that solomon sat on the throne of david his father but this is what the narrator says inspired by the holy spirit his kingdom was firmly established and really, again, just to sort of help you out here, we can draw a direct line here back to 2 Samuel 7 where God promises to put a son of David on the throne forever. We know it's ultimately about Jesus, but it's also about that dynastic succession. So when Solomon sits on the throne, what the narrator here is saying in verse 12 is that God has secured firmly Solomon's position. Okay, great. So that should have been that. That's the first point of context. Uh, he wasn't the front runner. Nevertheless, David has died and Solomon has been made king. And God has firmly established his kingdom. That is Solomon's kingdom. Second part of context, though. We go in a totally different direction based on what I just said than you might expect. Solomon doesn't consult God Solomon pulls a Michael Corleone. Does anyone know who that is? The Godfather. 
And the rest of chapter 2 reads more like a Mario Puzo novel than it does the biblical chapter. Solomon takes a page out of the mafia. He becomes a mob boss. And he makes a series of shrewd moves that secures his power. Now, remember what I said. His kingdom was firmly established in the hand of God. Verse 12. He doesn't consult God. He doesn't seem to feel that secure. So he does a series of moves and his intention is to secure his position as king. Now we're not going to read through this, but let me just summarize it for you. Uh, Step one, he kills his brother. Adonijah, the front runner to be king after David because his brother had contended for the throne. We see that in verse 25. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him, that is Adonijah, down, and he died. Now, remember, Joab was the commander of David's army, and he had sided with Adonijah. So Solomon raises up Benaiah, says, you do what I ask you to do, you might have a promotion ahead. So step one, he kills his brother. Because he worried that his brother would try to take the throne from him by force. Step two, he exiles Abiathar, David's high priest. Because Abiathar had sided with Adonijah, the front runner. Go down there to verse 27. So Solomon expelled Abiathar, the high priest, from being priest of the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. Don't worry about that last part. It's just that there was a prophecy against Abiathar's family, and this is how God brought it about. You're no longer the high priest. You're exiled. You're nothing. Step three. He kills Joab, David's general, David's first cousin, David, on his deathbed, had said, you know, you probably should kill Joab. Won't get into that. It's complicated. But ultimately, his motivation is because Joab sided with Adonijah, his brother. Go down to verse 34. Chapter 2, 34. The king put Benaiah. Remember Benaiah? Already killed Adonijah. He put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, or sorry, go up to 34. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. That is Joab, the general of David's army. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Joab now is removed. Now look at verse 35. So then the king, that is Solomon, put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. New general, new high priest. It makes sense politically. Get rid of the old administration, especially if they sided with a different successor. Get rid of them and put your own people in place. Makes perfect sense if you're Michael Corleone. Fourth, he killed uh, Shimei, who was a Benjaminite. Again, there's, there's history here. Uh, Benjamin and the rest of Israel didn't get along, so really Solomon should have been trying to unite the tribes. This just puts Benjamin, who Saul was from Benjamin, puts them apart, but he kills Shimei, the Benjaminite, because Shimei had cursed David 
when Absalom, David's son, had attempted a coup d'etat against his father. David, when he was coming back into power after Absalom had been killed, uh, met Shimei on the road and he promised Shimei that he wouldn't kill him. But then when he's dying, he says to his son Solomon, I'm still holding a grudge. You better bring his gray head down to Sheol. So Solomon does. Verse 46. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Now take a look at the second half of verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. In the hand of Solomon. Verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established in the hand of God. After this killing spree, the kingdom is established in the hand of Solomon, which is a more secure position. Just hold on to that thought for a moment. That's, so that's the second part of the context of this prayer. First part, David died, Solomon becomes king. Second part, Solomon makes a series of shrewd but grotesque and violent moves to secure, at least in his own mind, his power. Number three, Solomon makes a strategic alliance with the most powerful nation in the world at that time, at least in Solomon's orbit, Egypt. Chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Why does Solomon take Pharaoh's daughter and make her a queen in Israel? It's, it's just political. It's so that if Solomon's in trouble, he can call his father-in-law, the most powerful man at that time, and say, bail me out. It's another move. So he had his killing spree. Now he's, he's firming up his power internationally. So first deal with the internal, then the external. And he, he enters into an alliance with Egypt through marriage, which was the way it was done at that time. Uh, point of context number four. Solomon permitted... Israel to worship at the high places. Verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So there was no temple yet, but there was still a tabernacle. It had been in Shiloh. David brought it to Jerusalem, and David centralized worship at the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Solomon becomes king. He says, yeah, yeah, just go and worship at the high places. And we're like, why is this in the story? Well, it's because that's what the people wanted to do. And Solomon did not prevent them. Okay? Number five. If it wasn't bad enough that Solomon permitted the people to worship at the Canaanite high places, we find out that Solomon himself worshipped at high places. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only, but, this is a big but, but, he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. 
That's a departure from David. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. We'll get back to that. For that was the great high place. Now look at this part. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So not only did Solomon allow the people to worship at high places, but Solomon himself worshiped at high places. And his favorite high place to go was the great high place, Gibeon. And he would go there, and he wouldn't just sort of privately worship, but he would offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now why would Solomon do that? Oh, because he was really pious? Well, if he was really pious, he would worship God the way God wanted to be worshipped in Jerusalem at the tabernacle through the mediation of Levitical priests. So what's Solomon doing? He's making a great show of his common religion with the people. Come and look at me. You want to worship at the high places? Do it. In fact, I'll do it too. In fact, I'll do it with a thousand burnt offerings. Come and watch. So it was all part of his politics of populism. He wanted to be a popular king. He wanted to be of the same creed as the people. He didn't want to lead the people to God. He wanted to be embraced by the people. Number six, point of context for this prayer. Now this is surprising, right? Because remember the prayer? This is all driving somewhere. Like, how do we put this together? Well, we'll see. Uh, The sixth point of contact, which I already mentioned, which is verse 4, is that at the time, at the very moment, when Solomon prays this famous prayer, he's just offered a thousand burnt offerings at a high place, at Gibeon, the great high place, making a great show of his Canaanite religious practice among the people. See in verse 4 there king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the great high place. He wanted to be a great king so he went to the great high place and with much pomp and ceremony he said look at me. I'm one of you. That's the context of this prayer. Okay. Let's sum it up. From a worldly point of view Solomon demonstrated keen political intelligence. Just look at the three things that he did. Now, from the world's point of view, this is brilliant. Number one, he eliminated all rivals. Number two, he established an alliance with powerful Egypt. And number three, he curried religious favor with the masses. That's brilliant from the world's point of view. But from a biblical point of view, it's complete and utter folly. It's the exact opposite of what God wants from his king. And so so what we see in the the opening passages of Solomon's kingship is it's a struggle to understand what's going on because we can affirm what Solomon did if we're just doing history, if we don't have a theological lens through which to understand Solomon. But if he's going to be God's king If he's going to be David's successor, he can't just do things the way the world does things. He's got to do things God's way. So from the biblical point of view, Solomon was an absolute fool. And we've already referenced this, but he did not need to eliminate rivals for the throne. God had put him on the throne. 
Remember David? I mean, David did a lot of things wrong, but one thing that David did right is he just waited for God to put him on the throne. Saul was on the throne, and, and then God, through Samuel, anointed David to be king, but David just waited. He didn't always wait patiently. He wasn't always without sin. He put Saul into some very difficult positions, and yet he did not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Solomon, if he was truly like his father, would have seen that God put him on the throne, therefore his position was secure. That's exactly what we see in a close reading of the text. Verse 12, his kingdom was firmly established. Uh, Verse 46, now the kingdom was secured in the hand of Solomon. Which hand is more secure? God's hand or Solomon's hand? See, the problem with that whole chapter, if, if, if we sort of react against it instinctively, if we're repulsed by it, that's good. Because it wasn't right what he did. He shouldn't have killed Adonijah and Joab and Shimei. He shouldn't have exiled Abiathar, though that was to fill what the Lord said. It was unnecessary. In fact, there's a really interesting note tucked into the appendix of Solomon's life and we often get to chapter 11 so notice we're in chapter 2 and 3 here the end of Solomon's life is chapter 11 I just want to read to you four verses which show you that when Solomon went on his killing spree to actually firm up his kingdom and to secure his power he actually destabilized himself and made his kingdom less secure. So just flip over to 1 Kings 11, chapter 14. So this is an appendix. That is, this is the information that we don't get when we're just reading through Solomon's life. But we get to the end of his life, and then God, uh, through the narrator, gives us some information that then he wants us to put back at the beginning and throughout Solomon's life. See, Solomon wasn't just a total failure at the end. He was a failure from the beginning. But God's grace is wonderful. Take a look at chapter 11, verses 14 to 17, and then verse 21. And the Lord, so God is the active one here, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. In other words, the Lord raised up a man to be a troublemaker, to, to, to destabilize Solomon's kingdom. Why? When? And who? It'll answer that. This adversary was Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. That's just a historical footnote saying that the Edomites, and Hadad in particular, was afraid of David and Joab. Verse 17, but Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. Okay, so just don't worry about the details. All you need to know is that Hadad was a child when David and Joab subdued the Edomites and Hadad fled to Egypt. Now go to verse 21. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his father's, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead. Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. And it's at that point when Solomon 
kills Joab, that the Lord raises up an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, to destabilize his kingdom. That's interesting. So here's Solomon thinking that he's, he's making his kingdom more secure. What we learn is actually everything that he was doing, though it seemed wise through the world's prism, it was actually foolish because that God used those actions to destabilize Solomon's kingdom. And Ed, uh, Hadad the Edomite becomes a problem to Solomon all the days of Solomon's reign. We don't get a lot of details about what that was. But the point is, what Solomon did was not right. What Solomon did was not necessary. He was acting like a fool. So number one, he did not need to eliminate his rivals. Number two, the Lord actually had forbade the king of Israel to make an alliance with Egypt. Flip back in your Bible to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. So remember, in 1 Kings 3, verse 1, after Solomon had what he thought secured internally his, his power, he then wants to firm up his international power. He does that by entering into an alliance with Egypt. Seems smart. Seems like a good idea. One little problem. And that's Deuteronomy 17, 16. God was very clear. When you come into the land and you want to set a king over you, that's fine. You can. But make sure he reigns a particular way. And I'll look at verse 16. He must not acquire many horses for himself. That is, he's not to, to get a big army. Why? Because the king is supposed to depend on protection from God. He's supposed to trust God for his protection, not on the strength of his own army. Keep going. Or is the king to cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses? Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. The way that's worded doesn't make a lot of sense. Do not cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses. Well, like, what's God got against uh, equestrianism? Or what's he got against stables and horses? No, no, no. Translate this. The king must not enter into a military alliance with Egypt. That's very plain. That's what it means to return to Egypt, cause the people to go back to Egypt to acquire many horses. Do not enter into a foreign alliance with Egypt. Therefore, at the very beginning of his reign as king, not only has he done what he didn't need to do to secure his power internally, he has actually broken the word of God in making an alliance with Pharaoh in Egypt. Thirdly, Israel was not to worship on the high places as the Canaanites had done. Just go backward from Deuteronomy 17 to Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 6. I mean, I'm going to read this, but the point is, don't do that. Don't worship at the high places. Don't even worship me at the high places. You can read some commentators that say, yes, yeah, true, Solomon worshiped at the high places, but it did say that he loved the Lord God. Therefore, he is actually worshiping Yahweh, Israel's God, at the high places. doesn't matter. Because God here is very clear 
not only are you not to worship other gods, but you are not to worship me at the high places. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 12, 1 to 6. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. It's not just don't worship their gods, don't worship me that way. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, which the Lord your God has blessed you to do. To sum that up, Do not worship me at the high places. Worship me at the tabernacle or the temple. And there will be one place for you to worship me. In the time of the judges, that place was Shiloh. David moved the tent of meeting, the tabernacle from Shiloh to Jerusalem. So Deuteronomy is really clear. Worship God in Jerusalem. Not the high places. Now you might say, well, you know, he was a young king. He didn't know any better. Well, just flip back to Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20. He should have known better. Israelite kingship 101. Here it is. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. You know, it's not a lot of material that the king has to memorize. Do this, don't do that. But you say, well, you know, Deuteronomy 12 is five ver- chapters sooner, so maybe he had this down. No, obviously he hadn't even read this, because if you take a look at verses 18 through 20, he was supposed to write out for himself a copy of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he was supposed to meditate on it day and night so that the king would know who God is and how God wants him to lead God's people. Take a look at verses 18 through 20. And when this king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Might be just Deuteronomy, probably all of the Torah. If it is just Deuteronomy, he knew he ought not to have worshipped on high places. And after he has copied out this law, it better be approved by Levitical priests. No tampering with the word of God. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Write out the law, meditate upon it, follow it, lead Israel to follow it. So Solomon, in the early days of his kingdom, was a total fool. And I use that word biblically. Did not need to eliminate his rivals. In fact, that destabilized his his power. 
The Lord had forbade the king from entering into a military alliance with Egypt. He does it anyway. And Israel was not to worship on the high places as the Canaanites had done, but uh, not only did Solomon allow Israel to do that, but he himself did it, and he did it in a big way. All right, that's the context for this great prayer. You see, if you're just, if you're reading and you don't know anything about Solomon and you're, you're not just putting the, the, the Christian gloss on things, giving every biblical character the benefit of the doubt, then what you realize when you come to this point in the chapter is that Solomon is a total failure to start. And it's in that context that we have to consider what God says to Solomon. Remember, God, Solomon is there. He's sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. He's feeling pretty smug and pretty good about himself. And then God shows up at a high place. And this is what God says. Verse 5, 1 Kings 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. That, that should ring in our ears if you're, if you're soaking in the, in the Scriptures. At Gibeon, high place. Who do you not want to see at a high place? God. Because he's not there to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You don't want to meet God while you're in the middle of worship that he has forbidden if we're worshiping here in the church in a way that god doesn't want us to worship do we want jesus to walk through the back door at that moment but god shows up the lord appeared to solomon in a dream by night and god said ask what i shall give to you now how are we supposed to interpret that now if you're just reading casually and you drop into the middle of this chapter oh man so God really is like a genie. Not three wishes, but one. It's not at all what God is saying. What, what did God mean in Genesis 3 when he shows up in Eden? He says, Adam, where are you? Was, was God interested in a game of hide and seek? No, he was, he was calling Adam out on his sin. God knew exactly where Adam was. God doesn't show up and just sort of have these nothing things to say. He, here's Solomon who's made a, a total train wreck, biblically speaking, of his kingship to date. And he's at a high place and God shows up and he says, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, God is rebuking him and he's saying, you should have asked me before you went and killed all those people. You should have asked me before you went and married the princess of Egypt. You should have asked me before you just gave the green light to all of your people to worship me in a way that I don't want them to worship me. You should have asked me if I would have been pleased with a thousand burnt offerings at this high place. What do you want from me? That's how I read it. This is a rebuke. And, and this is a scary moment if you're reading the Bible the way we ought to read it. This isn't, oh, Solomon, silly guy. 
what he wants. Do you can I give you something? No. This is this is the all-powerful God who is not pleased. Solomon gets it. That's the context of this prayer. The, the context of this prayer is God's rebuke against total folly. And Solomon sobers up like a drunk at a ride program. Solomon, this is his prayer. So, we did a lot of work to get to the prayer. But with all that in mind, let's, let's hear Solomon's prayer fresh. I imagine Solomon was face down in his dream. Terrified. Before I read this, I want you to notice that everything that Solomon is about to say, until this moment, this is not how Solomon felt. He didn't feel too small to be king. He did everything that the world said you should do to be king. He felt large and in charge, loved by the people, secure from his adversaries, uh, secure internationally. And then God shows up and totally rocks his world. You ever like that? Feeling pretty good until God shows up? Here's the prayer. Oh God, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. And you have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. Pause there. God, I've made a mess of it. But remember my dad. Don't kill me. You, you love David, my father. You put me on, on the throne in his place. Remember, you did that. Remember the promise that you gave him. Mercy. That's how I read that. Solomon's trying to draw off mercy through David and God's promises to David. Verse 7. And now, O Lord my God. It's a good affirmation if God shows up. O Lord, You are my God. In spite of everything, You have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Hey, you've done this. You've put me here. I know it. It's all you. It's not me. And then look at this. Is this false humility? I used to think it was false humility, but now I just think it's, it's a staggering new humility, a fresh humility, in this, uh, just in the sting of a divine rebuke. I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. I don't know what I'm doing. I followed the world's playbook. But I don't really know what I'm doing. I thought I did, but I don't. 
and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Yeah, and I read there that his whole appeasing of them with the high places and the thousand burnt offerings, this is a great people. I don't know how to be popular among them if I, if I do it your way. He's afraid of the people. All of a sudden. And then verse 9. So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? I want to be able to know the difference between a good decision and a bad decision. I want to do it your way and not the world's way. So far I've been playing by the world's playbook, but I want to play by yours. Help me. I, don't, I just have no idea. I'm at a total loss. I think he's being sincere. But for the first time in his life, he sees God for who he is. He sees himself for who he is. And he sees the great chasm between God's ways and his ways. And, and he never bothered to ask God or to seek out God's scriptures to know how he ought to govern. But now he does. And God was pleased with his prayer of confession, his contrition, and his supplication. He liked his request. Look at verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. How often are we like Solomon? We can build our lives and we can build our churches without any serious biblical reflection. You know, the world will, can give us a formula to fill this room We can build this church without any prayer. How about in our families? The world says, this is the playbook. You got to go to school. You got to get a job. Then you got to get married. Then you got to get a house. Then you got to have kids. And then you need to save for retirement. And then you have to retire. And in retirement, you have to do the things that you weren't able to do when you were working. And yeah, the world has changed the order of kids and houses and marriage and all that. But that's basically it. How many Christians say, well, that's got to be my playbook then? Except where in the Bible are any of those things promised? Now, I'm not saying that's a terrible playbook. I'm not saying that it's sinful. It's not exactly the same thing. But have we stopped... To ask God what He wants of our life. What if the playbook for you is to give up everything and go to Cambodia to share the gospel and die at the age of 43? It's not in the world's playbook. So, so the scary thing about this is, okay, none of us are kings or queens, we're not killing people because we were trying to secure our power. We're not entering into foreign alliances with Egypt or the United States. Very few of us will ever even have the opportunity to do such things. But we still play by the world's rules, don't we? Not stopping to seek the word or to pray, but what we ought to do Think of the decisions you've made in your life over the last year, over the last three years, over the last five or ten years. 
Were they informed by the Bible? Do you say, I'm going to do this because the Bible says, you know, this is a good thing to do. Were they bathed in prayer? Did you seek wise counsel from other Christians or were you afraid that they would give you an answer that you didn't like? An answer that worked against what you wanted to do. At Social, we've tried really hard to make decisions based on the Word of God and by prayer. I think of the two, we're probably stronger in seeking the Word of God. As a church, we could pray more together. And if we want to see God do something amazing, like I said earlier, we better start praying together. God was pleased with Solomon's prayer and he gave him wisdom and many things on top. We don't have time to get into it, but the long life and the riches and the peace and the great name, those, those seem like great blessings and they are that God gives Solomon in advance, but they're also tests. Oh, you want to be wisdom? How will you use your wisdom if you have a long life? Because all of a sudden, long life means it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And you have to exercise wisdom for a long time. Blessed are they who die young, through one angle anyway, because they can sprint to the finish line and they don't need to go for that long race that's set before them. So, and we know that Solomon made a mess of it. Riches, riches can be a great blessing, but they can also be a snare. And we saw with Solomon that they did become a snare. But God was pleased with the prayer and God gave Solomon wisdom. Now look at verse 15. How did Solomon respond once God granted him wisdom? Verse 15. And Solomon awoke and behold it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. We see wisdom for the first time in Solomon's life right there. He wakes up. He says, what, what am I doing in Gibeon? This is not what God wants of me. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so he went to where he ought to have been in the first place. And he went to Jerusalem to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and there he offered lawful sacrifice. I would suggest to us that wisdom begins with worship. The way we worship will indicate whether or not our lives are characterized by wisdom or not. We need to worship God as God desires to be worshiped. In, in John 4, we're told that God will be worshiped in spirit and truth. What does that mean? It means this, that the only way to worship God is through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Everything else doesn't matter. If you don't apply the blood of Jesus Christ to yourself when you come through those doors to worship here, you might as well be a Gibeon. But when we together pause to remember the sacrifice of Christ, we see who God is, we see who we are, 
and we worship through the blood of Jesus Christ, then we showcase the wisdom of God, which is folly to this world. The good news for us, because probably we're all a little bit like Solomon before God shows up, playing by the world's playbook. The good news is that God met with Solomon at Gibeon. That's the kind of God we have. He says, what do you want from me? Remember me, God, Yahweh, your king. And so I end with this great final challenge. What do we want from God? I want to see his awesome power in and through this church. I want to see people coming to the faith through our witness. I want to see us finding increasingly victory over that sin problem that just repeats and recycles and repeats and recycles. I want to see depths of love and mercy and forgiveness among strained relationships in our church. I want to see marriages strengthened and fortified. I want to see God do something that I can't even ask for because I don't even know what it would be through His Holy Spirit in this place when we gather together and say, Oh God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, do something among us. I want to see Him do something amazing and powerful and unique to Him. Something that we cannot manufacture. Something that we cannot do ourselves. So just ask Him. Let's not be scared of the overcompensation and, and the, the faulty worship of hyper-charismatic Christians and say, Holy Spirit, we expect that you will do something here among us. Let's not be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask Him to come and to manifest His glory here among us in this church, in our families, in our lives. And then let's just watch the overflow of God's awesome, omnipotent power. As we go out from here, not timid, ashamed, or afraid of the culture, but going out and say, we've got a great God, you've got to know Him. I'm just not content to go through the motions. I hope you're not content to go through the motions either. Great prayers seek wisdom from God and say, God, do something. We're your servants. I want to be very clear before I close this out. I love this church and I think God is doing great things in this church. So this is not a rebuke. I'm not rebuking us. But what I am saying is let's ask for more. More of God. More of His glory. And he'll be pleased to do it. Let's pray. God, it seems like a lot of work to have figured out that Solomon's prayer was in response to your rebuke. That he had been uh, a fool playing by the world's standards and the world's playbook. 
And you were just waiting for him, but he never came to you. But you came to him. You met him in his sin, and you said, what do you want from me? We thank you that he asked for wisdom and understanding, and you gave it to him. And so we ask for wisdom and understanding so we can do it your way. And we pray that you would glorify yourself in us and through us. Just as you added so much to Solomon when he asked for wisdom. So we pray that you would add much to this church and to our families and to our lives. Not because we deserve it, because, but because that's who you are. You are a lavish God. And so I ask, lavish us with the riches of your grace. Do something here that is staggering. Open the floodgates of heaven. Surprise us. In your name we pray. Amen.